0: Thank you, everyone, for joining us. This is the Merge Medical Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Brown, with my co-host, Dr. Jeff Cole. We're joined today by Frank Amon, CEO of Triflow. Triflow has developed a percutaneous non-invasive tricuspid valve replacement. And this is important because tricuspid regurgitation affects millions of people worldwide annually, and it causes a significant mortality and morbidity and there just aren't really a lot of good options other than opening the patient up traditionally, which is a sternotomy. Uh, I am particularly interested in this uh, device because I'm a cardiothoracic TEE trained anesthesiologist. And so I was particularly interested in this when I heard about it. Uh, Frank, as you know, I'm already an investor in this and we're really excited to have Frank here with us. Frank, tell us about Triflow.
1: Yeah, thanks very much, Jeff. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um As you indicate, Triflow is a company that has uh, developed a completely novel uh, approach for tricuspid valve repair. It's something that was done from the beginning, not trying to adapt technologies, designs for other valves, such as the mitral valve. But in fact, the founders decided to get together and come up with a de novo design that, that really addresses the specific uh, issues that that are encountered in the right side of the heart and the tricuspid valve itself. Um, a huge problem. We can get into the numbers, you know, but there is, uh, you know, well over 5 million patients between the U.S. and the EU that could benefit from this procedure, uh, and there is very little that is being done to them to help them along other than, uh, you know, trying to manage palliative with drugs um, or eventually a uh, surgery which in these patients who have advanced age is is, uh, fairly uh, um, difficult and has a significant risk factor attached to it. So the founders got together and decided to uh, uh, come up with a brand new design that addresses a much more significant, larger patient population, specifically for tricuspid regurgitation with a couple of benefits. Number one, the valve uh, is... um, minimal in its design. It's basically a valve that works with the native valve. So it's not replacing the mm. current valve. It's simply there to um, uh, work in tandem with a native valve, uh, regardless of how large or how small or what shape the native valve has, um, and the orifice that is leading to the regurgitation. So um, that's basically the, the, the beginnings of it. Uh, we can talk about the technology, or talk a little bit more about the history of the company. It's up to you guys. I have a. Um, my
2: father recently, within the last couple of months, had a procedure, percutaneous treatment for the mitral valve. What can you tell me about the market? Where was that the first solution along this line? And um, if so, how many people are out there doing that? And then, as sounds
1: like you've mentioned, for the tricuspid. What's the landscape? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Let me give you a quick uh, overview of the landscape. So, you know, the idea of, of um, moving into a minimally invasive solution for any cardiac valve, whether it's the aortic, the mitral on the uh, left side of the heart, or in our case the tricuspid in the right side of the heart, um, is pretty obvious, right? Uh, we want to uh, uh, replace open chest surgery. Mm-hmm. And we now have the catheter and the technology to navigate into the area and to actually do all the necessary repairs, whether it is replacing the valve or it is just putting in a clip to, um, you know, making the annulus a little bit narrower and thus uh, closing that, uh, that orifice that is causing the regurgitation. Originally, uh, most of the work was on the um, the left side of the heart. So with the aortic and the mitral valve, just like your uh, father uh, received. Um, And there are several technologies out there uh, driven by the large cardiovascular global companies uh, that have been developing this in the past few years. Interestingly, for the tricuspid valve, um, people used to refer to it as as sort of uh, the forgotten valve. Uh, It is astounding in the sense that the incidence of tricuspid regurgitation, particularly as we age, is much larger in the tricuspid than it is in the mitral and in the aortic valve. So this is a significant problem, but it was forgotten uh, for a couple of reasons perhaps. Number one, uh, uh, there is no good solution, uh, as we said before. You can uh, use palliative control medication. Uh, You can use a a surgical intervention, which is gonna have significant risk. Um, But also the diagnosis was a little bit slow. So when you are at the initial stages of tricuspid regurgitation, it's difficult for the doctor to actually know that that is what the problem is they're seeing patients who have you know fatigue edema and those kinds of problems so usually it gets detected when it gets to be a real problem and at that stage again um the the risk or the 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 uh, solutions that are available are are not obvious uh or they're less than than satisfactory and so um you know And as the the technologies developed for transcatheter valve repairs, uh, there were the usual suspects, those large companies, as well as several startups that began to adapt what was working in the aortic or the mitral valve in terms of the valve design, um, and say, well, you know, it's gotta work. Uh, Let's try it in the tricuspid. Let's try it in the right side of the heart. However, the challenges in the right side of the heart Uh, and the tricuspid valve are significantly different. Um, The uh, uh, shape of the uh, tricuspid valve is very different. Uh, Just as an example, we initially think tricuspid, that means there's probably three leaflets in the valve. In fact, that's not necessarily the case. Only in 54% of the patients Many patients have four valves in the tricuspid. Many have two, so um, the this is also uh, the 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 shape of it. The annulus uh, is not necessarily planar and and straight shaped. Um, there are influences in terms of the shape of the atrium and shape of the ventricle, and all of these things make it. Very, very uh, challenging to adapt these other technologies, as I said before. And so this is where Triflow, where the uh, founders uh, started to play and come up with a completely different design that would be, you know, uh, addressing these specific indications or uh, challenges.
0: And I think those are good points you're making because I started the Tabber program at Baptist and the, the aortic valve is pretty much just a check valve. And when we started to look at mitral, we weren't doing tricuspid, but there's a lot more to the other valves than just being a check valve. I'm particularly interested in the product itself. Uh, can you describe that for us?
1: With regards to the design of the Triflow, there are really two components that are critical. Number one is the anchoring system. And number two is the actual valve, which we call the Triflow Flow optimizer. So, in terms of the design uh, of the uh, uh, valve, we came up with uh, three components that are critical. Obviously, there is a unique patented delivery system, uh, which is, by the way, one size fits all. So, if we decided to have a larger valve or a smaller valve, you don't need to have a separate, different size delivery system. So, I'll Leave that for a moment to come to the important uh, parts, which are the anchoring system and the valve itself. So this is the implant portion, if you will, of the Triflow device. As far as the uh, overall uh, fixation system or the anchoring system, uh, this is very different in the sense that it only has three uh, legs, if you will, uh, that will uh, fixate the device to the annulus uh, shelf basically uh, this anchoring device once in place is going to hold the actual valve and the valve is think of it as a as a little umbrella if you will uh, that is going to float uh, and can be positioned by the physician to cover the orifice wherever that regurgitant orifice is and when the uh, heart goes into systolic pressure, it will actually lock and close as if you were opening the umbrella, right? And thus it will seal the orifice that's there while the native valve is also working. And then in diastole, when the flow starts going in the other direction, the flow optimizer, which is what we call that, that valve, actually, the umbrella, if you will, it'll collapse again to let the blood flow in. So again, the three components: uh, number one, the uh, delivery device, which is uh, very critical; number two, the fixation mechanism, which is uh, minimalistic; it doesn't require any, uh, uh, you know, traumatic uh, uh, positioning. It basically just locks into the shelf of the annulus, and then number three, the actual uh, valve, which is working together with the native valve. So what all of that leads to is that. Um, you can adapt the system uh, to all kinds of shapes of the annulus as well as the uh, valves themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, You can adapt it to the location where the orifice happens to be. Uh, And if you look at the design itself, it's minimal, right? Uh, The footprint of the device, particularly if you were to compare it to a replacement uh, valve uh, is, is very minimal. And that means that, you're also going to have less anticoagulation issues uh, to deal with. Um, and uh, yeah, all of this leads to uh, to hopefully long-term uh, superior clinical results.
0: That's, that's great, Frank. I, I, I've got several technical questions. I'd like to stay on this topic for just a little bit if I can. Uh, Is delivered through the internal jugular or, or uh, the femoral vein?
1: At this stage, it's a transfemoral, so we're doing femoral axis, but it it could be a, a another axis as well. John. And if if
0: I'm understanding correctly, it's dynamic. You're not patching a hole. It opens and closes, as you said, with systole and diastole appropriately.
1: That's correct. So this uh, and and it doesn't entirely replace the native valve. It just works where the native valve is no longer closing appropriately, um, and and sealing that orifice.
0: And I know that the anticoagulation is always an issue. Uh, We don't want patients anticoagulated that don't need to be. Uh, Do we know or do you know how much anticoagulation, if any, will be required for this device?
1: So at this stage, uh, we don't have final formal recommendations. That's going to be part of the uh, clinical trials as we move forward. So far, what we have done is not required any other anticoagulation than what the patients who we treated already had. So um, most of these patients are on some form of anticoagulation anyway, because of their comorbidities or other issues that they may have. And so that's that's what we've continued to use. Um, but again, this is to be developed uh, over time.
0: And is the, what gauge is the catheter? What French gauge is that? that's delivered through?
1: Yeah, so at the outside of the uh, the the catheter, the delivery system is a, a 36-french um, steerable catheter on the outer, and on the inner, it's a 28-french. Mm-hmm.
2: As a orthopedic surgeon, you know, some of these concepts, uh, they're just so foreign to me to trying to, to, to cross over from orthopedics to, to cardiology, you know, forces and wear and tear and, um, you know, local pressure, how does that not ulcerate tissue? I mean, it's, it's amazing <laughs> to me, uh, because in our world, you know, the teaching is if, if in the skeleton anyway, if, 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 if an internal implant gets stressed over and over again, eventually it fails. Um, you know, you ta- you, you tape a little pebble on the bottom of the foot and you walk mm-hmm. on it enough, you, you get an ulcer. So how, how, did, how is that working? How is, is the fixation stable enough for uh, to be harmoniously present there in the heart and not migrate and its
1: fascinating yeah you touch you, you touch on a great point which is really the, the the fascinating anatomy and and the function of the heart right um, and uh, in many ways it's a wonder that heart valves that are implanted um last so long I mean we now test these for millions and millions of cycles before we put them in humans but um, you know the resilience of the the system itself is, is very significant it has been developed over decades of, of practice right um, as, as far as the fixation is concerned, um, again the the three legs if you will of the uh, the device, the anchors of the device, they will clip on, if you will, or they will—they will just uh, 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 connect to the annular ring uh, at the site of the commissures. So this is where the uh, each of the valves um, gets in contact, but between the two valves, where mm-hmm. they get in contact with the uh, with the uh, annulus, um, and once they're locked in there. You will also see in the design that these are the only parts of the entire device that have a fabric, little socks, if you will, those white socks. And uh, over the course of a couple of weeks, that sock gets endothelialized. So the tissue actually begins to cover and integrate Mm. uh, and thus fixate over the long term the device And this has led, in our experience, both in the animals as well as the humans we've treated so far, has led to a very stable fixation. Given the blood flow and the pressure, there's also no issue that the system might kind of loosen up again. Once you clip them on, uh, those are there to stay. And an important factor of this is also that um, the tricuspid valve tends to change in its shape and its size as the right ventricle changes in shape and size as well. And so the system that we have, the tri-flow system, uh, is able to adapt to that dynamic change of the uh, right heart. Um, And you can do that when you have this type of system where you've got those three anchors uh, that are in, in, in a way mobile, if you will, together with the motion of the uh, valve itself. What can you tell us about your, your other co-founders? Yeah, it's a, it's a great story. Uh, so um, initial thrust for this came from uh, three individuals. Uh, one of them is a professor at, uh, in Italy at, at the University of Rome, uh, John paul Lucia. He has been involved in several first-in-human procedures with regards to microvalve and aortic valve. Uh, Is one really of the true pioneers of the the, uh, transcatheter valve technologies. The other one is an engineer based here in the United States, uh, Luca Pesci, uh, who... um, worked initially at Edwards Life Sciences, the one of the leaders in, in, in hard valves, or the leader in half rough in the industry, uh, then joined a company called Cardiac Q, which uh, was developing a mitral valve as well. And uh, that company got acquired by Edwards. So um, he got plenty of experience from an engineering point of view uh, in, in designing these devices. And then the third part of this is uh, the uh, chairman of the company, Stéphane Piat, who had been at several companies, including Abbott uh, Life Science and uh, Abbott, and um, now is in Paris. And it was these three gentlemen that, in working together on a few of the other valve systems, they said there's got to be a better solution for the tricuspid uh, valve and that gave rise to uh, um, what eventually became several patents um, and then the uh, the design itself and now five years later uh, the first clinical uh, cases
0: that's awesome you know i will tell you jeff for those that aren't cardiac anesthesiologists everybody has tricuspid regurgitation it is almost, it's almost like you, you look at it and it almost feels normal. So many people, by the time they get a cabbage or they get another valve replaced, you see it. Um, if we're doing something endoscopically, you know, or, or percutaneously rather, we there's nothing we could do about it. We just leave it alone. And there's si- significant morbidity even to replacing or repairing that, even when you're already open. So this is a huge, this is a huge thing for mankind. Uh Correct me if I'm wrong here, Frank, and you got a powerhouse team, it sounds like, there. Is there not one competitor to this product?
1: Uh, There are several competitors, obviously, with such a gigantic opportunity, as you mentioned before, millions of patients. Uh, I would say that the, the world is typical for most of these cardiac devices is divided into two groups. Number one are the global cardiovascular device companies, uh, Edwards Life Sciences, Abbott, Medtronic, Boston Scientific. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you encounter a large number of startup companies, including AUS, that are developing new technologies. And obviously, um, a lot of people are participating in the space. There are essentially four approaches, uh, competitively speaking. The most advanced and already on the market uh, in Europe and also widely now used in the States um, is edge to edge repair. That is Abbott Triclip System. Edwards has its own system called Pascal. And this is a system that is applicable to a small percentage of the patients uh, that have a rather small orifice and have a very specific uh, size and shape of the annulus. Um, But it is uh, practical, and uh, it is the most advanced system out there. Uh, The second technology is uh, uh, basically annuloplasty, where you're trying to repair the annulus and and, uh, reshape the annulus. This is a technology that had four or five companies that have failed. So at this stage, it's questionable that that approach will work. Um, And then we have replacement, where you are completely replacing the annulus, the valves, the entire system, uh, there is one device, Edwards Evoke, that has uh, you know recently shown uh, good clinical results from reducing regurgitation, but there were also significant side effects um, and uh, major adverse events and again, potential for, for bleeding or for anticoagulation. Uh, but you know, there are several companies out there. The last one are those that don't fit in the three groups that I told you before. Um, so there are devices that are connecting to the vena cava, as an example. Um, questionable if that's going to work, um, but you know we are we are in that sort of group of others uh, with an approach that is, however, very distinct uh, from from competitors. When you said
2: replacement, is that that's an open replacement versus that's, you, where you're adding to the, the current anatomy, not replacing it, but supplementing it.
1: Yeah. So it, it is done through a catheter, still minimally invasive, but essentially what you're doing is you are replacing the annulus and the valves with a completely de novo system. So it's a fairly large system, comparatively speaking. Um, and uh, um, it it, you know, includes the advantage that You've got a brand new valve, and so you're going to indeed be able to reduce regurgitation uh, to none. However, because you're putting in this rigid, large system comparatively, uh, you're going to affect the uh, size of the the, the, the ventricle. You're going to have uh, complications with regards to bleeding. And what's interesting in the data, which we haven't seen all the details, but one th- issue that we're really interested in is the measurement of what we call tapsy, tricuspid annular plane systolic uh, excursion. And that's basically the measure of, of um, um, performance, if you will, of the uh, ventricle and of the valve itself. And so we don't see that the replacement device is actually uh changing that measure that tapsy measure which is all critical uh, whereas uh with our device what we have seen in our patients is that it significantly improves that um, and uh you know so uh, again that's a little bit about the replacement technology
0: that's interesting so you've seen improved tapsy in uh the human subjects that have been done and i guess you did this in a model?
1: That's correct. So, you know, it's really fascinating to see in our cases, in particular in the human cases, um, that this is much more, and it is about much more, than regurgitation. Um, There is also a question of what is the function of the right ventricle and the right atrium in these situations? Is that being improved or are you just improving the uh, regurgitation? Uh, we find that when you are improving the overall heart function, uh, there is a significant improvement and eventually this will be borne out by clinical data, but you'll find an improvement in how the patient feels um, exercise capacity very significantly, quality of life. All of these things will come not just from reducing the regurgitation, but actually from improving the function of the ventricle itself. And that is one of the things that we can measure. Tapsy, we measure such things as volume of the right ventricle, blood volume inside, mm-hmm. which we have reduced in our patients. And so uh, this bodes well for the long-term outcomes uh, in terms of what it means for the patient, mm-hmm. which is feeling better and and uh, you know feeling more vital, and ultimately also what matters to the uh, reimbursement agencies and uh, and the payers, which is fewer hospitalizations um, and uh, you know a better economic outlook as well from from an expenditure point of view uh, for these types of diseases.
0: Do you do they know or do we know? what is the mechanism that is allowing it to improve the 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 right heart function is it the the flow optimizer yeah
1: Yeah, so essentially what what we believe is happening here is that by um, reducing the regurgitation we are decreasing the tension that the right ventricle is under and reducing the tension of the ventricle is a good thing. It allows for the muscle to operate more efficiently, if you will, mm-hmm. and for contract and expand more efficiently with less energy, um, and with a better, you know, obviously output of, of of blood. And this tension reduction is something that has been also discussed in the left side of the heart, um, and potentially what we have here is is a benefit again, beyond just looking at regurgitation, that speaks to improving somebody with, let's say, heart failure and preserved ejection fraction, Mm -hmm. as well as uh, tricuspid regurgitation. A little bit early for me to make those statements, but uh, from what we've seen in the four patients we've treated so far, things are looking rather good.
0: You know, that really makes me wonder if you couldn't take the same idea and put it in the mitral valve position,
1: absolutely you could and the patents are available for that we uh, covered that uh, application as well uh, there is no reason why this should not work in the mitral valve and so um, obviously we are uh, extremely focused right now on the tricuspid occasion, yeah. but in the future uh, this could be applicable to other valves as well do you feel like you're well protected absolutely so the uh company at this stage has five issued patents that cover us europe china uh, and uh, there are several other patents in the works i should also say that the patents cover not only the tricuspid valve design as we have described it before um, but also is applicable to uh, adapting to the mitral valve uh, if uh, the, when the day comes that that we have to do that. So uh, everything is very well protected at this stage.
2: Frank, can you review stage of development? You know, where you've been, where you are
1: now, and what what are the milestones in front of you? So um, basically, the Whole development started uh, just about five years ago from scratch and the first four years were spent doing all of the design and significant amount of testing that can go before you're uh, able to treat any humans so there were plenty of acute and chronic studies with swine as i've said before evaluation over millions of cycles that you need to show that the valve is opening and closing correctly that it doesn't loosen up uh, that there are no leaflets that potentially could fly off, et cetera, et cetera. This very, very significant amount of testing really goes back to decades of experience um, and are well set by the FDA in terms of what's, what's required. Uh, after these four years, we were able to move to a uh, first in human clinical uh, trial, which has taken place in Europe. And the four patients that we have treated were all uh, procedural successful. Um, And uh, in particular, we're following now three patients who have had also um, up to eight months, one of them, uh, five months, the other one. And we just did one right before Christmas. So uh, it's gonna be hitting the first month of treatment. With that um, very unusual success rate uh, for our first in human trial, because remember the patients that are in these trials are patients who have very significant risk, Uh, are not eligible for any other existing procedure. Mm -hmm. And so this is sort of the the last recourse for them. So the result to really have, you know, four out of four successful is is remarkable. And and with that, we are now gearing up to the next level, which is a, a couple of studies. One is going to be taking place in Europe and one is going to be taking place in the United States with regards to the one in the US which is uh, you know the, the critical pathway for regulatory approval it's what we call an early feasibility study so there'll be about 20 patients a single arm you look again at confirming the procedural safety and success and clinical efficacy. And that then down the road allows you to move into a pivotal trial uh, and uh, eventually getting the product uh, approved for to go to the market. Um, and so that's where we are right now preparing that early feasibility study. And then one additional study in Europe that is going to give us a little bit more flexibility in terms of expanding uh, patient populations and and looking at eligibility. And it's it's, uh, got a little bit more flexibility in it.
0: You know, I'm glad you brought up the point about how sick the first patients are in these things, because I think a lot of physicians don't even realize when we're doing these, it's the sickest of the sickest patients. And it speaks to how well your device is working, because Basically, those people are just a step away from death. And I know when we did the tabers, it was the same way. The initial studies were people, they were, had to be deemed non-surgical by two different doctors, the, the severe pulmonary disease, COPD, et cetera. So it does speak to uh, what you're doing and how important it is. And it's really impressive how well those first few patients are doing. Once you get past that compassionate care phase, what's the rollout look like? Or do you know yet? What's the sales sort of plan?
1: So eventually, this this is going to be another couple of years of clinical development. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happens is that you can commercialize this product pretty early on, right? So you you compare to other you know, devices and certainly compare to drugs. There is a period where you, you treat the early feasibility study. You do 20 patients or so, and then you go into a pivotal study. Mm-hmm. The pivotal study is about 300 patients that are randomized in this case. Now, interestingly, there are a lot of patients, so you can do these clinical trials fairly quickly comparative to other indications if you were looking at other heart failure trials. Um, And then you are going to be able to start commercializing the product as long as you follow basically a um, registry-based surveillance of the patients. So they all will continue to be involved in a clinical study, but it's going to be a registry type of study. Um, And, Quite honestly, we don't anticipate that we will reach the level of finishing up a pivotal, a pivotal study and and doing the commercialization, because typically what happens in this industry is that uh, the large you know four participants that I mentioned before typically uh, mm-hmm. that they will eventually acquire the technology and do what they do best, mm-hmm. which is marketing commercialize. and commercializing. Yeah. That's right. right? Yeah. Um, and and that's not our forte. <laughs>
0: Right. I could clearly see that happening
2: as far as potential and, and sales channels. It sounds like us and Europe sounds like tricuspid possibly moving to mitral valve. I mean, that sounds like huge potential. What, what kind of numbers have been been looked at there or is it even
1: postulating? Yeah. (laughs) So, um, we can obviously speak that to, to, to the fact that this is a multi-billion dollar opportunity from a revenue point of view. Uh, you mentioned U.S., you mentioned Europe. I should also mention China. Um, there is also significant interest now in India, and uh, we've even talked to a few folks in South America. So globally... Um, the tricuspid regurgitation indication probably spans 70 million patients, seven zero million patients. Five of them are in the US and the EU alone. Um, The uh, revenue potential for this, you know, remains to be uh, decided how this is going to be priced, but it easily goes into the 12 to $15 billion uh, Mm -hmm. annually um, in, in terms of potential. And then the question is how, fast can you penetrate under that, right? It's not like you're gonna be treating 100% of the patients on the first year. So for us in the cardiovascular device business, the question is always how soon or how fast can you penetrate the marketplace. And for that, I have to pitch in, uh, again, another feature that perhaps we didn't talk about a lot, which is the ease of implantation for the practitioner. So the interventional cardiologist or the cardiac surgeon that's doing this, this is a pretty straightforward procedure for them to follow. Um, And we haven't encountered any issues there as as far as, uh, you know, them needing to learn any new techniques. Um, this is all using the technologies that they're all using for imaging and otherwise. And so uh, we believe that the uptake of the technology should also be pretty fast. Can you compare
2: and contrast that to the other product that you mentioned? We won't say a company's name, but the, the larger full replacement that you said so a much uh, larger device you know, price-wise and then just technically? Uh,
1: Essentially, what they see is that their patient selection needs to be very careful. Uh, They uh, need to make sure that the patients they're going to treat are going to have a uh, profile that that, um, coagulation-wise, hemodynamics-wise, is amenable. Uh, And so that probably means that the percentage of patients they're going to be treating is significantly smaller than ours. In terms of the practical procedure, uh, the implant is um, straightforward. Um, But again, you've got a significant uh, potential uh, disturbance of the um, right ventricle. Um, We haven't addressed the peculiarities of the right ventricle. But you have Cordae there that actually um, that sustain the, uh, the valve. Um, you have leads for uh, pacemakers that many of these patients have. And these devices actually have a disturbance on all of those things. And so again, from a procedural point of view, uh, that makes it much more complex. Um, but at the end, I think that the device will be fine. It'll be fine just for a very small percentage of patients, uh, maybe in the single digits, uh, in comparison to what we have to offer, which you know we expect to be applicable to you know 80 percent of the patients uh, that present with uh, tricuspid regurgitation.
2: I don't think the think... device is it sounds like it's simpler, therefore easier to manufacture is that
1: that's a very that is very astute observation so yes from a manufacturing point of view the fact that it's such a minimalistic design uh, makes it also very amenable and in in terms of the economics of it so profit margin wise we would expect that to be a a significant advantage
0: i did the taver program at baptist east here in memphis for about eight years and um it, once we got it down and we were really doing like normal patients, it was so significantly better than open procedures. It's just mind boggling. We were actually doing them under sedation by the time I left there. So, I mean, we're almost at a point where we're doing valve replacement same day. Like these people could just about go home as opposed to, so for anybody that's listening, I mean, you're talking about a sternotomy. This is for a non, non non-medical person. This is opening your chest up. I mean, you're going to be in the hospital for a week at best, as opposed to any kind of percutaneous technology, which you're bringing to the table with this. So anybody that's listening, I mean, this is huge. And this sounds like a significant improvement on existing technology. And I'm excited to hear about the the hemodynamic uh, remodeling that's taking place because you just think of these things as an on and off switch
1: and they're not. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um- Everything is uh, in tandem, right? So the function of the right side of the heart and the left side of the heart... Um, the amount of blood that is uh, ejected out of the heart. All of this is not a function of one valve or of three valves or four valves. It's actually also how the muscle works. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need to really understand the global um, functioning and look at the improvement of the global function of the heart. And this is where I think uh, uh, TAPSI and these other measures are very critical. And you know, if you look at TAPSI in particular, uh, 14 millimeters or so usually is correlated with uh, very poor prognosis but as soon as you are north of 17 millimeters if you go to 18 20 22 that's an indication of good long-term success mm-hmm. and that's what we're seeing with these patients right mm-hmm. that's fantastic I think
2: the comparison just cost between that open procedure and length of hospitalization and associated morbidity and mortality i, I would I think it's staggering to think how that's going to compare once you have a, a mature uh, percutaneous program out running.
1: There are uh, you know, significant costs for these patients as the present status is for them. Uh, it's not just the operation, which most of the cases, an operation cannot take place because the, there is too much risk involved. And so what you have here is uh, frequent rehospitalization episodes. Uh, and that is expensive, particularly if somebody has an additional problem like heart failure um, and hypertension, as an example. And so the ability to really affect the 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 function, uh, not just of the tricuspid valve, but of the entire heart, uh, now means that you potentially look at reduced hospitalization rates. And so, you know, you may be saving uh tens of thousands of dollars for each hospitalization that 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 you're sparing
0: so it's not only a recurring revenue stream if it's commercialized successfully but it's a growing uh revenue stream and you're even talking about adding mitral valve which would i mean in my mind that would double your math
1: absolutely so the uh potential here is is um as large as it gets for any of these uh, medical device technologies. And you know, that's the, uh, the attractiveness of, of heart disease, right? It continues to be uh, a driver of, of significant expenditures and growth. And uh, no matter what you look at, uh, cardiac failure, cardiac diseases, uh, regurgitation are going to be drivers of growth and expenditures for decades to come.
0: And I I think that's a natural segue into the finances of this. You know, we've talked about the addressable market we all know is huge. It would help a lot of people. Um, Are are you guys in a funding round? Are you going to be soon? If so, you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, certainly. Uh, The company has uh, been historically financed with approximately $15 million that came in two rounds, the seat round and the Series A. Um, And the uh, Series A had as a goal to finish the first in human uh, studies that we have now, you know, brought to a conclusion. Um, And so with that, we now have to gear up to take the company to the next level. And the next level is the ability to execute as flawlessly as possible the larger clinical trials. Um, And that requires a slightly different group of people, uh, a slightly expanded team. Um, And for that purpose, uh, and to complete the uh, next clinical studies, we're looking at raising up to $25 million uh, in a Series B round of equity. Um, And, uh, yeah, we are open and uh, in discussions right now with a couple of venture capital firms. Um, But... um, We may also make available the opportunity through some uh, convertible notes for our current investors and other new investors who want to come aboard to uh, to um, uh, expedite the financing and participate in the financing.
0: What will the post money valuation be with this series B round?
1: So I can tell you what the previous valuation was of the company, and that was uh, 37.2 million dollars. So this is the post-money Series A valuation. Mm-hmm. The B valuation remains to be determined when we have a lead investor who we don't presently have. So that's what we're looking for. Uh, but um, you know, I would expect it to be uh, obviously a, a plus from there. Uh, but we have to see what the market bears. Uh, ultimately, the investors are going to be uh, determining that together with us and negotiate that with us. Um, at this stage, we don't have a valuation for the Series B.
0: So, if and Frank, you can correct me if I'm saying any of this wrong, but Triflow has a one-size-fits-all device that improves both systolic and diastolic function by reducing tricuspid regurgitation with an easily placed percutaneous procedure. Uh, similar to the well-known TAVR that the uh, medical community is already aware of, uh, eliminating the need for palliative care or an invasive uh, procedure such as sternotomy.
1: Absolutely. Nicely put. Hey,
0: Frank, I, I just want to thank you for joining us here today. This has been a fascinating conversation for me personally, and I know that the listeners will find it fascinating as well. You know, we we strive to have guests whose products and or services check mark several boxes One, they they number one, they have to help patients and uh, number two they, they have to help physicians do their jobs and make their jobs easier and number three have to at least have the potential for financial improvement in the lives of uh, the merged medical members and you definitely check mark that box well i'd like to thank everyone for joining us today for the merge medical podcast thank you frank from the ceo of triflow and uh, we're out